oh crap, I was muted because I was squeezing my bottle. That sounded weird. <laughs> well, don't do that on camera. <laughs> and by bottle, I mean my Yeti. <laughs> That's all I mean. That's what you call it these days. All right. Oh, you gave it a pet name. That's so cute. Oh, yeah. What is up, good people? Welcome back to Holy Shit Pod, a holy, irreverent, irreverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. I'm Brandon. I'm Katie. And I'm Sam. What well, we sound real cheesy. I ain't Brandon. Today's episode is dedicated to church announcements. It's been a while since we've talked in explicit terms about what's happening in the world. And that really is my favorite part of every episode, even though the word of pod is also good. But before we get into the next round of winter holidays, there are a few things we need to discuss and revisit. If you're a first time listener, welcome. We like to keep it simple so you should catch on quickly. And if you're a regular, you already know what it is. Let's get into it. Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. I be glad in it. Can you sing it? Yeah, you heard it. You heard it. <laughs> she was doing the Fred Hammond version too. <laughs> Come on, sing for Jesus. I love it when you sing. Mm-hmm. You trying to take over Sam's job as the Bishop of Praise and Worship. Yes, yes, the Archbishop. The Archbishop of Prayer and Worship. 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 <laughs> so listeners, please open your bulletins to the announcements section and follow along. There are a few pertinent matters that merit your time and attention. First, it is once again that time of year where podcast streams trail off, people start spending time away from work and hanging out with those they love, even if the only person they love is themselves. Is that grammatically correct? It doesn't matter. We are joining in the joys and sorrows of that season. And so that means this is the second to last episode of the year, but not really because next week's episode will include a few end of year church announcements and a word of pod with two of my favorite humans, the Reverend Corwin and Malcolm Davis and Pastor Leo Sage. Corwin and Leo will join me for a conversation about how to navigate the holidays with authenticity and courage. The conversation, we've already recorded it. We're in the process of editing it right now. And it really is two episodes. So while we'll be off for a couple of weeks, you'll have part one of that conversation next week. And part two will come the week after Christmas. Our starting point for the conversation um, was or will be depending. It, we've already had so it was, but it also will be how we navigate the holidays as black queer folks who have to navigate family dynamics. But it's not just a black queer conversation. We're also going to talk about how to navigate the holidays in the midst of loss and grief, perhaps after the death of a loved one. You don't want to miss it. And then after the week of Christmas, that's Monday, December the 27th, as I've already stated, there will be part two of the discussion alongside some of our favorite moments of the last year on this pod. And then the first Monday of the new year, January the 3rd, we'll have part two of our favorite moments sprinkled with a few reflections and affirmations as we begin the new year. All of that to say, try not to miss us too much. There'll be, there will still, why are you breathing so heavy in this microphone? There will still be things to stream for those of you who might need a break from your families and we'll be back in full force on Monday, January the 10th. 
That was a long ass introduction. That was an introduction? That was the opening. Oh, shit. I actually knew what you were saying and then I still got lost, but that's all right. I just stopped listening. The listeners know. They ain't going to listen either. <laughs> Y'all are trash. <laughs> the short of it is we're not actually off, but we're off for two weeks. We're going to send you all content so that you can not miss us too much during the holidays, but it won't be following the standard format. It'll all be a little bit holiday-ish and different. Screw both of you. Announcement number one. Last week, HBO Max released the long-anticipated reboot of Sex and the City entitled And Just Like That. The series features three of the four original cast members with Kim Cattrall, who some would say was the unsung star of the original series, noticeably absent from the cast. The first two episodes attempted to acknowledge her absence and some of the actual reasoning behind her being written out of the show. Some have called the new series sexless in the city, noting the drastic difference in pacing and tone. People of color have been sprinkled throughout every episode and every scene, and the show attempts to tackle topics like race, gender identity, and sexual orientation at a much slower, perhaps even less comedic pace. Spoiler alert, in the first episode, Big dies. So sorry, I couldn't hold it in. If you haven't watched it, hope you didn't didn't screw that up for you, but it does happen. Big dies! That's tragic. <laughs> Sam and Katie, I know that neither of you are watching this show, but I thought maybe you would have watched it in the past. And at the end of this year, I thought it would also be a great opportunity to revisit some of our previous conversations about sex, sexuality, and gender. So for starters, did either of you watch the original Sex in the City? No. Nope. Not surprising. But I assume you heard of it, right? Yeah, I had heard of it, but it came out in 98, which is when I started seminary, and I didn't do anything while I was there. So I knew people were watching it. I knew all the cool people were, but I was not one of those people. I can't even tell you what it's... I'm surprised your seminary didn't talk about it in the classroom. It was great fodder for talking about sex. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Presbyterian. We don't talk about sex. The only sex we talk about is at back then was that they didn't like gay people, but they, they wanted to hear about sex. But no, 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 they didn't talk about sex in the city. But I assume that maybe some of your, like you, you have white girlfriends, right? Like platonic ones. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just didn't hang out with people who watched it. I mean, like I think probably my gay male friends watched it, but I'm sorry. I'm like completely boring, but no. You are a horrible white woman. I hear that so much. This was like the white woman's rallying cry. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't watch it. Do you understand you're the token white woman of this podcast? What is wrong with you? <laughs> we're, we're revoking your white woman card. Yeah. Well. Also, in 1998, I was a junior in high school. And I, as, a, as a black male who was a junior in high school, I wasn't watching an all-white Sex in the City. Oh, no. Did you watch the original, Brandon? I mean, so I didn't watch it originally either. First and foremost, because my parents did not pay for that package that had HBO included. We had basic cable. They're so cheap. As I've said before, we had dial-up internet forever. But when I became a gay man... He's been gay all his life. And, and by became a gay man, I mean was honest about being a gay man. Like the only gay show that I watched as a kid was Will and Grace. And I snuck and watched that because I didn't want anyone to know. And now, as a full-grown gay, I went back and I watched the entire series and the movies, and I absolutely love it. So when I heard that the reboot was coming out, I was excited. But Sam, to your point, the original series was focused on the sex lives of four very white, very mostly straight white women. And so I was connected with it because I felt like I was like getting my gay card, but I also wasn't as connected with it because it was a show about for white women, and that didn't necessarily appeal to my sort of sexuality. It didn't wet my whistle as it related to having a conversation about sex. But the biggest thing about it was 
it was a pretty revolutionary show in that in the 90s, we didn't like to talk about sex on television or in public for that matter, right? That's probably also why I didn't watch the, the show. I mean, in addition to being cheap and not having HBO, like... I, if if all they did was sit and talk about sex, that is something I would not have done. Well, it was more than talking about sex. I mean, there are actually quite graphic sex scenes. Samantha, Kim Cattrall, Kim Cattrall, like her character was like all up in it all the time. It, I mean, there were some pretty good scenes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. But you know what? There are going to be people who write in and say, Brandon, you know what you're talking about. These other two people, definitely not cool. But there's somebody out there who you have spoken this word to today. And I'm saying it to you two, especially because I think just like you, there are many humans who may listen to this podcast, some who may not, who may have avoided sex in the city initially. And I do think in this latest iteration, even though some people hate it because it's not as funny, at least not the first two episodes, it's very serious. I mean, think about it. They were 30-year-old white women in New York City in the 90s. This many years later, they're 50-year-old white men. Easy, easy. What do you mean? She was a 30-year-old white woman in the 90s. Oh, it's, it's getting a little close to home. Actually, I had it at 2000, but yes. But Katie, I'm, I mean, this is your show now. These are 50-year-old white women in the context of a world that is increasingly honest about sex and open about sex. Even if we're not as accepting of diversity, there still is a lot more of it. So the cast has a lot of trans folks, non-binary folks, black folks are throughout the series, and they're wrestling with broader topics. It seems so far to be much less about sex at least not in the way that it was in the 90s. It's a very 21st century conversation about sex. You might like this version better. Everyone who's afraid of talking about sex or watching uh, non-pornographic sex on television, Good God. go to HBO Max and watch the new Sex in the City reboot entitled And Just Like That and let us know what you think. Moving right along, because y'all don't watch the show. Well, first, let me say this. This isn't about the content of the show. It's about my feelings about remakes and reboots. I kind of have mixed feelings about them. I think it's hard to redo a really good show well, right? I think we've talked before about like, say, By the Bell, which is in a reboot with some of its original cast members and now Sex in the City and others. And I just wonder if people can't be creative enough to create something totally new that's also as good. That being said, there are some that have been created that I say, okay, I like this or they've done it well. But it seems to be a lot right now. Just a lot of another iteration of this old show and I just don't know how I feel about that. There's too much creativity out here in the world for us to be doing this over and over and over again. But here's the thing with these two shows. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Say by the Bell. I actually watched a few episodes of Say by the Bell on whatever that streaming service is that no one actually utilizes because it's not as good as the rest of them. I'm just not calling their names because they haven't paid us ad dollars. Contact us. We'll say your name out loud. They're probably not going to contact us after your statement just now anyway, but carry on. Oh yeah. Maybe that wasn't the best way to do that by that wonderful streaming service that everyone loves. <laughs> but so with Saved by the Bell particularly, I'm thinking about the fact that I did grow up watching Saved by the Bell and I loved it. Me too. I even loved it when they went into Saved by the Bell the college years. I grew up with these characters. I did too. I was aware of how white they were then. I mean, Lark Voorhees was the only brown human. Uh, we just going to erase A.C. Slater. <laughs> So A.C. Slater, 
Mario Lopez, very much a Latino man who passed as white for all intents and purposes on the show. There was nothing culturally specific about either him or Lark Voorhees that was read into the show. Race wasn't a major dynamic of the majority of that series. When they rebooted Saved by the Bell, they made this intentional turn to wrestle with class dynamics and to have two separate high schools, one of which was closed down because the government didn't fund it. And all these kids from lower income households are now in this high school that has all these really rich white kids in it. And they're trying to wrestle with class and race in ways that I think the original Saved by the Bell did not. So one option is create a new show about high school students and don't call it Saved by the Bell. But another option is to appeal to the sort of cultural affinity that's associated with these TV shows and try to do something new and progressive with them. I agree. Reboot stuff. And that's why I think I have mixed feelings because I do think you see the creativity in what you just explained with Saved by the Bell, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And if the same thing is happening with uh, Sex in the City, then I can probably be won over. I wanted to get into the Wonder Years, the black version of the Wonder Years. And I'm all for rebooting a show that's all black, right? I I, I want you to do that. I want to take all these all white shows that I, because I grew up watching Friends and I grew up watching Saved by the Bell and I grew up watching some of these all white shows. So I'm all for (laughs) blackifying, you know, that's what I I am for. Let's make it black. I love that. So so do you like the black Wonder Years though? Because I think that that's actually some really good television. I haven't gotten into it. I want to. That's why I was saying I want to I get into it, but I just haven't had the time here recently. But I will say, I, do, I also typically hate reboots. I think the question that I'm always asking is, it's less about is it good or bad and more so what conversations does it start potentially? And if you go in looking for it to be the show that it was back in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go into it saying, I have a love for these characters and I want to grow up with them and see where they are now, unless your life is stuck in high school, which some people's are, you may choose to appreciate the growth and the development of the characters. See, that See, that was a good conversation, even though y'all don't watch Sex in the City. Katie, that's your TV show. Go watch it. But let's move on to our second announcement. Last week, the trial of Jesse Smollett, Smollett, if you want to be fancy, concluded with Smollett being found guilty of falsely reporting to the police that he'd been a victim of a racist and homophobic assault in 2019. For those of you who do not remember, Jussie was a primary male actor in the Fox series Empire, also starring Taraji P. Henson and Terrence Howard. And Jussie uh, gained even more national attention when he was allegedly attacked by two men wearing MAGA hats who berated him with racial and homophobic slurs. Shortly after this occurred, reports of Jesse coordinating the attack started surfacing. And now, two years later, a jury has finally found that the attack was a hoax that was directed by the actor himself. Smollett Smollett faces up to three years in prison for coordinating this hoax. Prison is never funny, but Smollett Smollett is. But the judge has yet to set a sentencing date and the defense has already said they're going to appeal the decision. Do y'all remember Jesse being attacked by these folks or Jesse asking these folks to attack him? Mm -hmm. I don't think he set it up. I think he was attacked. (laughs) (laughs) You are foolish. Foolish. Oh my gosh. I think, why do you like this? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I have some thoughts about this, and they're not what you wrote in the script. For the record, I never write thoughts in the script. I just have prompts. The thoughts that I have about this kind of just emerged as I reflect on an article that I saw the other day about, for the second time, the Justice Department closing the case hmm. of Emmett Till. Hmm. You know, if y'all don't know who Emmett Till was, he was a 14-year-old boy in the 50s who visited his family in Mississippi. From He came from up north. A Apparently, he whistled at a white woman coming out of a candy store or said something to her. She went back and told her husband. Two white men went in the in the night, pulled him out of his house, murdered him, tied his body to a cotton gin and drowned him in the Tallahatchie River in Money, Mississippi. So the challenge for that is years later, we found out that the lady lied that she lied about what happened. And she was still alive. Nothing ever happened to her, right? As a matter of fact, they closed the case for a second time because they said, ah, we couldn't prove she lied. So, And so when I think about the fact that we just convicted Justice Smollett of five felonies uh, with like the history that we have in our country of white people lying about crimes, it's just like, ah, mm-hmm. whatever, you know? So I've got my own feelings <laughs> about this whole that we spent as much money as we did prosecuting Jesse for, for five felonies. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. Yeah, I think you threw me for that with that. And I'll have to think about that a little bit more. I think both what you have said and what I think are also true. As a lesbian who can be in danger of a hate crime in certain areas or in any areas, it makes people ask, was it real or did they, did she get someone to um, just beat her up so she could say something about that? And I think there are people who are going to say, oh, you can't trust them. You know, this kind of stuff happens. It's just like all of the kind of disbelief around women who say that they're raped. I mean, it's always like blaming the victim or ignoring what the victim said. So... And I also want to affirm what you just said because I, I, I hear that. Yeah, yeah. And I understand the reality of, of making accusations that aren't true or lying about something that can castigate an entire group of people. Right. Um, so I hear that as well. I mean, and the reality is the U.S. justice system is not actually about justice. The U.S. justice system, system is about punishment. And we're not even assessing whether or not something is truthful or factual, right? The question from the jury wasn't, did Jesse get attacked or did Jesse not get attacked? Did Jesse coordinate the attack or did he not coordinate the attack? The question for them is, which side proved beyond a reasonable doubt their case? If the prosecution's case was, Jesse didn't coordinate this, this is all a lie, these men are now coordinating to try to harm him as an openly gay black man. I wasn't following the trial closely. I don't know if that's what they said or not. But how compelling was their case? The prosecution defense either side, right? This is an adversarial uh, system wherein only one side can win. And the side that argues their case more effectively is the one that wins. So at the end of the day, I'm not here to debate whether or not Jesse coordinated the attack or not. To your point, Sam, my question is, why is our judicial system so interested in this particular case? And why is it a national conversation in this particular instance? Because he's, he's, he's a B-list celebrity at best. And that's no tea, no shade against Jesse. I love Jesse. But why are we so fascinated with a black gay man doing this? And what are the other conditions that led to him feeling as if he had to do this, right? I mean, I'm going to this. Some people suggest that this was a financial thing for him. He wanted to put himself in the news so that he could get more money on the show Empire and get a better contract. Well, I I also thought I read that it was kind of in response to the fact that Empire or Fox didn't take seriously a death threat he had received. This all happens in the context of a broader political climate. Correct. And so what is the climate wherein 
a black gay man in Hollywood on a Fox show that's all about black people feels that his only option for negotiating his salary, let's say that, let's, let's assume that he coordinated the attack. Right. Why was that his option? Right. And what are the conditions financially that allow for heterosexual black actors to make a certain salary, and then you value people less. I mean, we see this on Netflix, right? When Monique, I, I love Monique, y'all. Don't talk, don't say, don't speak no ill of Auntie Monique. But when Monique sits there and gets asked to do a comedy special for half a million dollars, and Dave Chappelle gets twenty million for one, there's some financial disparity. And so, what tactics and strategies do people use to be compensated in an equitable fashion for their work? And how does our society require these things of us, and then penalize us for utilizing what some may feel are the only tools available to them for achieving their goals. So I'm thinking about the the example that you gave of Monique, and I'm actually a fan of Monique. And I'm thinking about the disparity that exists, especially with pay equality among men and women, among white folks and black folks. Uh, because didn't Ellen also do a, a Netflix comedy special? How much did she get paid? It was more than a half a million. And so for me, there's there's that question about pay equity, right? And the systems that that will say this black woman does not get as much as this black man or this white woman. My question is to you, Brandon, because you said don't say anything ill about Monique. Would you pay the same ticket price to go see any three of those? Like, are they the same in terms of the caliber of comic that they are? Do they demand the same by virtue of their craft? And how well they do it. Do they demand the, the same level of, of not just pay, but, you know, like have have they created the same level of clientele base? I don't know what I'm trying to say. Fan base? Because like I can become a comic. I never expect to make as much as Dave Chappelle. Uh, <laughs> and I think I'm pretty damn funny, you know. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Sam, new, the newest comedian on the block. Uh, Sam, I think that question puts me right back where I was just talking, right? It's not simply a matter of how much can these comedians garner in terms of a payout for a Netflix special, it's the broader culture. How does the broader culture assign value to the things that these comedians do say? Like at the end of the day, Monique is the only black woman of the three folks that we've talked about today. And how do we value black women differently than we value black men? White women. I mean, because Katie is Ellen DeGeneres. She's just a pastor. Ellen's comedy is pretty void of anything about her sexual orientation. It's very family friendly. That's her brand. And so we appreciate that um, sort of pale vanilla whiteness. <laughs> Those are all synonyms. We appreciate that bland presentation of sexuality that doesn't require us to think seriously. I'm not calling you. This is not about you, Katie. It's about Ellen. I, I saw your face. But the key is... I think that the question has to exist inside of the broader climate of how we value people's bodies. Uh What strategies do people feel forced to utilize to get the money that they believe they are owed? If you go to Monique's Instagram or you Google her or you YouTube Monique, listen to what she says about why she thinks that she deserves the top dollar. I think she has a damn strong argument when she's like, look at all the things that I've done for black women, for black people in comedy. She has a lot of firsts on her resume. And so if you're looking at it by the resume, What the resume suggests is that she should have just as much as Dave Chappelle or Ellen DeGeneres. But if you're looking at it based on how accessible her comedy is to the majority population, white folks don't want to hear Monique talk about what what, what she's talking about. So so there's a value placed on Black people's dollars. If if Netflix only stands to gain $2 million from people streaming Monique's special, of course, half a million seems like it's reasonable for Netflix. And if they know that Dave Chappelle is going to piss everybody off when he says homophobic things and everyone's going to then stream it to see exactly what he said, and Dave Chappelle is going to get everyone talking about Netflix comedy special, mm-hmm. that's a billion dollar deal for Netflix. And so $20 million ain't that big of a deal. 
so th- that was a big rant about capitalism and how we, it assigns value on people. So speaking of capitalism, announcement number three, this holiday season is poised to be a tough one for most Americans. As supply chain disruptions continue and inflation reaches all-time highs, consumers are seeing higher and higher prices and an overwhelming lack of inventory as they're shopping for the holidays. And in some cases, they're experiencing both of these things, right? It's not only that there's no inventory, there's also a, an extremely high price for this thing that your child has said they've wanted for the last three months. After two years of a pandemic, consumers are now more tired than ever. And some have said potentially more susceptible to the marketing tricks that lead to excessive buying and hoarding. Katie, how's it going over there? So, you know, I have never gotten into the this holiday buy, buy, buy stuff. Shocking. I know. I think this is Christmas is where you all started telling me I was poor last year. Um, I mean, we did stockings and we did um, maybe one cool present and maybe some clothes and a book or something like that. So... I don't think we have anybody listening under the age of 13. But anyway, like we do stockings um, and and that's really important. Because when you were a child, you got one clove. Yes. <laughs> Katie's family was like, here's how you make more wine. The non-alcoholic version. One you get clove. one glass of grape juice, one clove and a slice of an orange. Share it with your brother. <laughs> we got a... <laughs> we got a whole orange. Anyway, um, so I used to, I usually try to buy fun things that she needs, but maybe she wouldn't have gotten if I if it were a different time of the year. So I, I have never gone and like fought over a tickle me Elmo or whatever things that that people have in the past. I don't know what this year's big thing is, but for us, the importance is being together and spending time together because we are usually going in a bunch of different directions when we're not at the Christmas time. So I went to a Walmart um, Thanksgiving night one year and as like research for a sermon. And it was the most... Wait a minute. Did Katie just say she went to Walmart as research for a sermon? That's the only time she's been to Walmart to do research for a sermon. She said, Walmart is is ghetto. (laughs) Say ghetto, Katie. (laughs) Say it. No, I'm not going to say that either. It had nothing to do with that. I have been to Walmart. I'm saying that on a Thanksgiving, I don't do, I should have started with, I don't do Black Friday shopping. Oh, oh, okay. Black Friday. (laughs) Or White Friday shopping, as Brandon would say. I thought you were going to say, I don't do black people. Go ahead. And what, but I went, I went to understand what the uh, draw is, right? I mean, because like people don't come to church during Advent or Christmas or whatever, but they all show up on Thanksgiving night or, or White Friday. And like, what is it that captures people more than what we did in the church? So, Sam, what are you doing, Baymanette? Does Amazon deliver there? Yes, Amazon <laughs> does deliver there. Um, we are a sprawling metropolis down in um, Baymanette, Baldwin County, Alabama. We have a Walmart, a Popeyes, oh a God. Wendy's, a McDonald's, a Hardee's, oh <laughs> lots of things. Okay. All right. So you get gift cards? Um, <laughs> So I'm just I'm just putting it out there so that y'all know that Baymanette is coming up. So as a fellow Amazon junkie, well, I'm not really the junkie. I think I think Jamie's the jun- junkie. Oh, uh, my spouse loves Amazon. Look at you calling her your spouse. Yeah, she'd probably throw something at me if she heard that. So her birthday is December 28th, right? And I've been instructed that I can't 
roll those two things into one. I can't be like, oh, merry birthday. Here's, you know. That's horrible. I'm glad you learned that. So Amazon is delivering and Coach and some of these other places are delivering stuff for me. Jamie's getting something from Coach? Coach Outlet. I'm <laughs> sorry, Coach Outlet. <laughs> I was like, oh, Coach. It's still Coach. It's still Coach. I know. Uh, <laughs> Does she listen it did to this? Come, no, but it did come from Coach okay. Outlet. I mean, our life is good. We have what we want. And that, that doesn't mean we have a whole lot. It just means we don't just necessarily need or want a whole bunch of stuff. And so I haven't really bitten a big bite out of the apple of capitalism, but I, I am biting from it because I have these important occasions coming up during the holiday season. Yeah, I don't know if something's wrong with me or not, but I haven't been spending as much. Like the only reason that I've spent money for this holiday season, well, nothing is wrong with me. I'm actually being consistent because I always forget about holidays and birthdays until like the day before. And then I have to overnight things. And I've been seeing all these articles about supply chain issues. So I'm like, what is Facebook advertising to me? I should definitely go get that. Yeah, you better. Because Facebook knows the things that my partner wants for Christmas. So I am susceptible to all of the branding that's true and advertising of meta because it's not facebook anymore right meta meta it's facebook ain't nobody gonna call it that shit i'm gonna call it that because that's what they want to be called you have to respect people's names and identities haven't you learned anything progressive liberals and corporations are people too (laughs) i came across an interesting list online to help consumers be more mindful about what they're doing this season all of these tips Assume that you're going to participate in the capitalist consumerist holiday that is now Christmas because it's not at all about Jesus' birth. But the list had four tips. And so I want to offer these to you. The first is actually to be intentional and make a list because Facebook and Instagram are going to market to you all the time based on what you've clicked and where you've gone and how close your phone has been to the publics. Make a list and be intentional. Don't just click the ad like I did and buy a gift because it reminded you of your mother. Facebook knows you're going to think about your mom or your wife when the coach outlet ad comes on. Make your list, check it twice, and be intentional about what you buy. The second is minimize discomfort. People have this urgency to buy, right? I was previously a person who would wear a pair of shoes until it fell apart. I would drive the car until it was run down. That was me. Now, when I get to the place where every day my feet are hurting so bad, I might choose to buy 17 pairs of shoes as opposed to one because now the White Friday sale gives it to me for 20% off. Don't do that. Maybe that's only me with my ADHD. It is. So minimize your discomfort, which will decrease the sense of urgency. The next one is manage your biases. Retailers take advantage of cognitive biases in advertisements their floor layouts, their display technique. So be aware of the things that cause you bias. Um, For example, the scarcity effect, right? So if we can make you believe that that this thing is scarce, that there's only 25 of these TVs left, that might make you more prone to buy it. Retailers know that. So be aware of how your brains perceive these advertising cues and make sure that you check them at the door as you're walking in the store or navigating the online shopping sphere. Yeah. And let me tell you, I'm actually grateful that has underwent a change or an evolution of sorts um, over the years. When I was in college, I worked at Circuit City. That doesn't exist anymore, but you all remember what it was. Mm-hmm. There's still one in Baymanet. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe. I think it was the last one to close, but no, there's not one there anymore. Uh, <laughs> the headquarters of Circuit City. <laughs> Why do you joke about Circuit City, but before it went defunct, it was Best Buy. And Best Buy killed it. It was the place. It was. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. was. Yes. Uh, I worked at Circuit City literally on the day after Thanksgiving. 
because back then stores actually closed, which we're kind of returning to thanks to this pandemic. Um, on Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, we were open like at 5 a.m. Certain sales that we were having or doorbusters or, or White Friday specials, we, we would literally print out paper vouchers and say, we've only got 15 of these computers. And first come, you know, that, that type of thing. And there would literally be a line wrapped around the building. And so I've seen this evolution over the last decade and a half of going from not creating that to opening, not even closing. Some stores like Walmart will stay open throughout the, the entire Thanksgiving. And all the way up until this point to where they're not even limiting. They just have like a big pallet full of stuff. And it's like, I, I, I can go into Walmart in the middle of the day on a white Friday and they still have some of the doorbuster items that they used to say would be gone in the first 15 minutes. And it was so sad because people would be fighting and trampling over each other and, you know, like getting into all out brawls because they're trying to get their child this, the only one of five Playstations in the yep. store. I, I think it is funny that this article that you were reading from, Brandon, is from CNN Business and it sounds like some like uh, centered, very Zen thing about how to approach shopping. So I sort of was laughing, but it is, it, but it is good information for life in general. I mean, in the last one, it was check your emotions, right? I forgot that there was a fourth one. Check your emotions. People are going to appeal to your nostalgia and your desire to be with family and feel so warm, even though your family hates you now. But you'll still buy them presents at Christmas and check all those feelings at the door. Be aware of your emotions and be centered and be aware of what you may be trying to overcompensate for in your buying. So let's take a quick break, check our temps, stand outside to breathe unmasked, and we'll be right back in 60 seconds with more church announcements for the good of the congregation. Don't go anywhere. More laughter and fun is coming your way right after this. What is up, good people? It's your boy, Sam, and I just stopped by to remind you of something you might already know. Today's episode is sponsored by Theolab Media. Theolab Media is a motley group of creatives embracing more imaginative ways of thinking about spirituality and humanity. To learn more, visit theolabmedia.com. And if you're liking what you're hearing, pay your tithes and offerings. Head on over to patreon.com slash theolabmedia and put a little love offering in the basket as it is passed around. If you want to be blessed... Do, 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 pay your tithes and your old prize. Now, we love the kind that jingles, but we prefer the kind that folds. Amen. Is that what you actually say in your churches? No, that was a little Coming to America uh, reference, white people wouldn't get it. Right. I did watch Coming to America. Thank you. Wayne, what year? When did it come out? It was like in the 80s or something? You were a white woman. When the sequel came out. I didn't know that made me woke. In the 80s, the bar was very low for white women being woke. She didn't understand what she was watching. She needed to go watch it again. Now that she has black friends. Argument can be made now, too. And just like that, we're right back into it. Without masks, even though this is a virtual, I still don't want you breathing on or near my screen, Sam. So cover your mouth. Our last two announcements are more word of pod-ish. I want to take a moment to swing by Katie's COVID corner. You see how it's spelled? I do, and it can't be spelled like that. I'm not okay with it. Wait, where is it? Where is it in the script? Where is it in the script? Are you not following where we are, Samuel? I'm never following. We're on an announcement for it. should be pretty easy for you to find. Okay, this is page three, I think. Okay, Katie's COVID corner. No, this is not. I don't see it. Wait. Oh, here we go. Katie Gibson update. Okay. (laughs) But do you see how Katie's COVID corner is spelled? Yes. And Katie is 
opposing that. We already said it was going to be all K's. Katie Covey Corner, KKK. We need to design a logo for this. This is great. And put like a white hood over <laughs> the, the second K. Jesus. Yeah. The mask could look like a hood. Yes. yes. Let's do it. Yes. Katie's Covey Corner. But let's not do that. This, this, I promise you this would be something in Dave Chappelle's uh, skit. And this is why he's worth all the millions. I'm just saying. Let's not. Speaking of that, I did look up the article. Shit, I closed it. <laughs> Netflix has <laughs> paid. It was it, it was insightful. Uh, so I don't blame Monique for being pissed off because if you're looking at this, we, we're not going back to that. Amy Schumer got 13 million. <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres uh, made 20 million to 25 million for her special. Ricky Gervais made 40 million. Who was that? Who is that? He's a he's a uh, British person, UK uh, stand up comedian. He ain't funny. You don't even know his name. He got forty billion. Mm-hmm. Chris Rock got forty billion. He got forty billion. Shit, forty million. Oh, okay. I think okay. it was for two different specials, but I think he still got forty million. Chris Rock ain't that funny. Dave Chappelle got sixty. Jerry Seinfeld got a hundred million. I don't understand that. White people love Jerry Seinfeld. I don't think he's funny. I don't think he's funny either. I didn't think the show was funny, but anyway. Okay, every once in a while. But. To Monique's point. Right, right. He ain't even funny getting $100 million. They offer her. They couldn't even offer her a full set seven figures. How much did Tiffany Haddish get? She ready. She didn't get common because they broke up. Wow. But I love both of them separately, not together. 800000 This is still to Monique's point. Monique is like, I've, I'm an OG. I've been out here for God knows how long. And y'all going to pay me half a million? And you're going to still pay this woman who just arrived on the scene? 800,000? 800,000, which is still significantly less than everybody else. So the black is the two black women still don't even get, it doesn't even, even amount to what one of the lowest paid white people or black men got. I think Wanda Sykes came out like, I get what you're saying, Monique. But Netflix, if you want to pay me half a million, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> She's I amazing. Yep. <laughs> I can't remember if that was exactly what she said, but I think there was something funny like that. So just like that, we're right back into it. I want to take a moment to swing by Katie's COVID corner because the three of us haven't been together since Miss Omicron stepped onto the scene. And that merits a bit of conversation, methinks. Katie, I know you can do this with your eyes closed at this point. What do we know so far about Omicron and how it's impacting our lives? Before you say that, I do want to highlight that my Greek professor would roll over in his grave if he's dead. I don't know if he's alive. He would be very upset. (laughs) Wait, who was your Greek professor? I'm not going to say his name in case I just wished him to death accidentally. My Greek professor would be so upset if he heard all these news people saying Omicron. Omicron, Omicron. Y'all are not saying it correctly. It is Omicron. The long go in Greek is Omega. Omicron, Omega. Get it right or pay the price. Okay, well, thank you for doing that. I'm a little concerned that Omicron is female, but that's all right. We'll we'll move on. Why are you concerned? You didn't even watch Sex in the City. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying, and and you just threw a fit about how to pronounce a dead language. Okay, so actually, we know not very much about Omicron yet. I mean, they're still trying to figure it out. It does spread more than the original coronavirus. Um, Not sure yet if it's um, more so than Delta. Symptoms have been mild for folks, but like the CDC and World Health Organization say that's not necessarily, you shouldn't assume that that's the case. Um, They think that vaccines might work. Other people think they might not work. And so we don't know a lot, but again, the most important thing has always been since this whole thing started is 
to know that we already have the tools to fight it. And, and that is to wear a mask and that is to socially distance and that is to wash your hands. And, you know, if you look at the COVID tracker, 48 out of the 50 states are in high community transmission. I mean, it's lower than it was a few months ago, but it's still considered high. And the other two are substantial. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic, even though um, some people are like, eh, you know, we can take masks off now. So if you're traveling over the holidays, just wear a good mask, double mask. Um, be respectful of one another. People are going to still get sick if we're not paying attention, whether it's from Omicron or Delta or... The flu. The flu. Okay, KK. <laughs> Shit. We certainly need a jingle for Katie's COVID Corner when we get ready to bring that in. Katie's COVID Corner. Go ahead and... and- <laughs> Okay, KK. So go ahead and make that brand. I got you. And um, and we're gonna. And Katie, you just visit. did the, yeah. But mm-hmm. does it have to be all okay still? Yes, it's cute and racist. As long as we're in a <laughs> pandemic, we're gonna we're gonna have Katie's COVID corner. Let's make the token white woman a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, like. We're trying to build listeners, right? <laughs> Keep me all up in your morals. We're, what the hell is wrong with we're you? Tr- <laughs> we're trying to get another another audience. Right. All right. Excellent. I don't think they're going to listen to it's, us. It's going to be a red, it's gonna be a red hat. <laughs> <laughs> Shaped like a clan mask hood. <laughs> Katie, thank you for the update. I do want to be crystal clear for a moment and say this is not a news podcast. In case you're confused about the tone and the tenor of this podcast, this is a commentary podcast. Please go to the CDC website to find your guidance about what's happening with COVID-19. Katie is the closest thing that we have to the CDC, the KDC, the KKKDC. So (laughs) she doesn't get on here talking crazy. She talks about things that she actually knows about. What we do know is that the CDC is saying everybody needs to be vaccinated. Everybody needs to get a booster who is eligible. Pfizer's been approved for a booster. Everybody needs to keep wearing masks. I get so frustrated with being the only person wearing masks in public. I feel stupid being the only person wearing masks. And then I say, no, I'm actually the only smart motherfucker in the room because all the rest of these folks going to have Omicron tomorrow. So all that to say... We're a commentary podcast, not a news podcast. Go to the CDC website. Relatedly, what pisses me off about this is the fact that people were trying to call it the South African variant at first because South Africa's science was the bomb. And they actually have great surveilling techniques where they could track where this emerged in their particular context. And now we got all these travel bans on African countries when we've already seen that scientists in the UK were able to trace back beyond the date that South Africa reported it, and we know that the Omicron variant existed prior to South Africa reporting its existence in their context, but there is no travel ban for the UK. Ain't that some racist shit? But isn't that par for the course for what whiteness does, right? It's like, instead of saying, oh, wow, look at what South Africa has done. This has existed on in other countries, on other continents, but the brilliance of South African doctors' research in medicine has brought to light um, this variant on a world stage and has also been studying it to find out how it reacts to um, vaccines, its resistance to those folks who've had a different variant, um, the rates of reinfection. I mean, South Africa really has done some amazing work, but whiteness has said, it's a South African variant. Stop all travel. Keep the black people out. They bring it over the, 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 the variant. They bring in Omicron. And if you're from Alabama, they bring in Omicron. 
so it's it's it's, <laughs> it's crazy, man. And and I, I know y'all, I know all of our listeners probably get tired. They be like, Sam, always talking about whiteness and blackness, but y'all gotta be seeing this stuff. Y'all gotta see how whiteness functions. Like this is some crazy shit. It is crazy. I mean, because to that point, at the end of the day, what this clearly signifies to me is that even when we learn all of the white ways of doing things, right? Not that science is a white construct, but I'm saying there are Western ways of approaching research and science. And I think what I appreciate about Black folks um, across the globe is the fact that we can code switch and deal in both worlds. And so we're utilizing Western scientific practices or practices that originated in Western contexts to track this virus and doing it more effectively than the white folks who may or may not be the originators of that methodology. And then we're penalized when we learn to play by the rules of the game that they set, while whiteness still has the ability to do whatever it wants, whenever and however it wants. Even if you are a person who is tired of hearing about us talk about race and whiteness and blackness, at the end of the day, this is deeply theological. All that Christianity is in the Western context, in American context, is a way to categorize people along racial lines and make them think that Jesus wants it to be that way. And so whenever we go into this whiteness and blackness thing, at least for me, it's a very theological conversation. And I'm trying to invite people to think differently about the world. We should be pissed off that there's still a travel ban on African countries. And when every scientist has said travel bans aren't even the more, most effective way to limit the spread of the Omicron variant, it would be better if we implemented these infrastructures that allow for testing when people go to and from these countries. But we don't need to shut down borders. So what's the motivation if it's not science and data? Exactly. Well, I, obviously it's racist because... Americans are allowed to go back and forth anywhere in the world. If I want to go to the continent of Africa and I want to go to Zimbabwe and then I want to come back from there, I get to come back into the country. That doesn't make any sense because if there's more Omicron some, in some other country in the world, um, I'm still bringing it back. But it, but it also is true that it's in about 18 states right now. So anytime you kind of have a random is not the word I'm looking for can't think of the word, but any kind of random rule like that, that makes no scientific sense or no sense at all is based in racism that has undergirded our country and Christianity for several, several hundred years or more. I mean, maybe it's arbitrary. Arbitrary. Yes, that was the word I was looking for. Thank you. As Katie's already stated, we are still in a pandemic. Should that make you fearful? Absolutely not. But it should make you thoughtful. And it should make you try to intentionally navigate the world and do every single thing that health experts are saying. Whether you call yourself a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, atheist, or agnostic, regardless of your religious creed, get vaccinated. If you have a relative who's not getting vaccinated, encourage them to do so. If you are a black person listening to this podcast who is skeptical of vaccinations and you're aware of the long history we're in, they've experimented on us. Look at the number of white people who've gotten this thing and just know that if you haven't gotten it yet, you got at least an eight month lead before it starts to impact you. I, on the other hand, will have the third arm because I took it with the white people. <laughs> so for our last announcement. 
I want to revisit a topic we've discussed in several previous episodes, and that is the Texas abortion law. Since we've last discussed it, the Supreme Court of the United States has revisited the Texas law and heard arguments from a similar case in Mississippi. I think in the case of Mississippi, they actually do ban abortions after 15 weeks. So Texas technically doesn't ban abortions. It's a technicality that allows individuals to prevent abortions, resulting in a ban, whereas the Mississippi law that was actually on the books prior to Texas's abortion law actually bans abortions. And the Supreme Court just heard arguments in that case, I think either last week or the week before. And since Sam, since Craig has made this your topic, will you uh, update us and give us some more background info? How the hell Craig made this my topic? I mean, because he says that you can't, you can do no wrong. That's true. Shit. And I don't want to mess it up. So uh, apparently, so the new Texas law uh, actually is so crazy. Uh, I heard Brandon say it doesn't ban abortions. It, it, it's supposed, uh, what did you just say? It, it prevents abortions or something like that? It's a technicality, right? It's a legal loophole that allows abortions to be prevented or to, to, that strongly disincentivizes people seeking abortions for fear of punished legal retribution or punishment. And so it effectively bans abortions, but that's not the exact law. It effectively bans it. Um, right. it it's, a, it's supposed to create a deterrent, but technically it's saying, it says that abortions can't happen once cardiac activity can be detected in embryos, which is crazy because how would you even know that? You know, usually that activity only happens around six weeks in, in developing cells, but the law, it, it, it forbids the state from enforcing it. And it gives the power over to citizens to enforce this law, right. which is, again, interesting because how would citizens know any of somebody's medical information, like all of that stuff. I, I have no idea. So the difference here between Texas and Mississippi is that Mississippi bans abortions after 15 weeks. However, it's, it's still the state. It's right, still the right. government who um, oversees this ban. There's one abortion service provider in the entire state of Mississippi in Jackson. So right now, the, the Mississippi case probably won't be decided until June, but it's going to have implications um, that are going to reverberate throughout a lot of states, especially Republican states who have tried to enact legislation uh, against a woman's right to have agency over her own body. So last week, the Supreme Court um, issued a ruling in part, uh, kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a partial ruling. I don't know. They issued a ruling about the Texas law that says, they well, they didn't strike it down, but what they have said is that abortion providers in the state of Texas actually can sue state officials because the way that law was originally crafted was that the state wasn't responsible for enforcement. So you couldn't sue anybody, right? You couldn't, you couldn't challenge the law by saying, I'm going to sue the state if, if your neighbor is the one who's bringing the case against you. Um, but the Supreme Court has said, no, actually, the abortion providers can sue the state, but they didn't strike the law down. And so in some way, some of that murky, very ambiguous structure of the law, the Supreme Court is saying, they're, they're kind of clearing some of those things up. They're saying, we ain't going to touch the law yet. But these people can't bring suit um, against state officials, uh, certain state officials. I mean, they're playing Pontius Pilate, right? Yes. In some, yes. Readings, in, some, in some readings of scripture, Pontius Pilate washes his hands of them trying to crucify Jesus yes. because he doesn't want anything to do with it. And that's opposed to doing the morally right thing right. and saying, I'm going to rule on this matter. He defers it to another court right. because he doesn't want blood on his hands. Yep. 
That's what the Supreme Court just did. Yep, yep, yep. They deferred their decision to a lower court. And on top of that, they deferred their decision on the Mississippi ruling. So in some ways, Mississippi is now null and void because we have this Texas abortion ban, a ban in effect, you know, as an outcome of the way that the law is written, that does restrict access to abortion after six weeks. And what they said is, well, let those other courts deal with it. And we have 26 states that are already poised to put abortion bans on the books in the event that the Supreme Court does not clearly affirm Roe v. Wade as opposed to overturning it, which is most likely at this point. Katie, I want to take a turn here, but I want to hear from you if you have things to add. Well, I I find all this appalling. I still do. I mean, so I, I don't know that I can do anything other than rant at this point. I mean, I think Roe versus Wade, in case you don't know, is it bans or it allows unfettered kind of um, abortion until the age of viability, which is 23 weeks. So that um, that takes away years of um, research and law. And I think the problem is, um, I think it was Justice Sotomayor who said, if, if this gets overturned, then um, what kind of credibility does the Supreme Court have if it, if it is clearly swayed by political parties and such, which is which is what the court is now. And so I think this will perhaps raise that question for, I mean, there's no checks and balances if they're just going to go with the Republican way of doing things. I think that's a challenge to democracy. Not that democracy has things right what we say we believe about democracy. So I, I want to take a quick turn here though for a second, because for me, again, this is not a news podcast. It's a commentary podcast and our bent is theological. Even if you're not a Christian, that's okay. Sam isn't either. I want to entertain the Christian story about Jesus being born in the nativity to see how it troubles our understanding of what's happening now in the courts. And this will double as our invitation for the week as well. So here's the deal. We are approaching this season that the Christians call Advent, but really it's Christmas, people. Consumerism has won the battle. Get over yourselves. This is not a season of waiting. We are counting down and finding excuses to receive more presents leading up to Christmas Day. But I digress. Back to the point. My thought is this. As we think about Mary and Joseph trying to find an Airbnb in Bethlehem with availability, and we think about the fact that the only place with availability had a two-star rating and came with hay bale sheets and hostile style accommodations that included shepherds and their sheep. How does this image of a child being born to a poor single unwed mother inform the pro-life pro-choice debate? How does the thought that this young 14-year-old woman who had no choice but to say yes to a deity that required her to birth a baby that it said would be a savior, how does that image inform the Texas abortion ban, the Mississippi abortion ban, and every single other abortion ban that one of those 26 states is about to put into effect when we think about this child being born to a mother who thought, based on her religious community's moral code, her only option was to say yes without concern for how she'd feed the baby, paying no attention to where the child would be bathed, and the world not giving a damn about who would protect the black child when he grew up and some law enforcement officers were trained to view him as a threat, and the world disregarded the fact that if all she could afford was a two-star Airbnb, she definitely wouldn't be able to afford health care, even if the Affordable Care Act mandated that she'd have to pay for health insurance or be subject to additional financial burden and or legal action, how does that story inform the pro-life, pro-choice debate and inform every abortion ban that these people are trying to put into effect? 
What do our assumptions about the nativity, the arrival of Jesus, the song of Mary, the Christian birthing narrative, what did these assumptions make palatable as it relates to your political worldview? If you think Mary's only choice was to say yes and then see the pregnancy through, what might you think about a young 14-year-old girl who becomes pregnant after a harmful sexual encounter with her elder? Does what you think about Mary inform whether or not you think a 14-year-old child today has the right to say no, has the right to health, has the right to dictate what happens to her body? If you romanticize what you read in scripture and pluck the humanity out of the story, you'll do the same thing to humans you encounter today. You'll say stupid things like, but what if Mary had an abortion? What if Mary would have said no? Then we wouldn't have had a savior. Spare me that bullshit. This year, as you approach the birth of Christ, at least for those who do that sort of thing, think about what's happening as it relates to abortion rights in the United States of America and let one story trouble the water of the other. And let both trouble the waters of your faith and your soul. Do not for a second romanticize this nativity. Do not take another year to subject Mary to our patriarchal sexist logic. And if you take the time to think about this, I'm almost certain that you'll realize there might be some correlations between what you think about Mary and what you think about a woman's right to have agency and control over her own body. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and Aints. Have we told you lately how much we appreciate you for listening? Because we do. It is true. And more than listening, we love it when you talk back. Keep sending those emails to holyshit at theolabmedia.com to ask a question, vehemently disagree with us, or to make Sam's head bigger than it already is. It's huge. Speaking of making my head bigger, if you really want me to feel good about myself, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review this pod. We appreciate all ratings, but we love five stars best. And we also love reading your reviews. So please do both today. And don't forget you can show us love over at patreon.com slash theolabmedia. All right, good people. We'll be back next week, same time same place. And until then, peace.